This morning, come your Bibles, we'd invite and encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We'll be reading from verses 5 through 12. Uh, today is Reformation Day. Uh, the Protestant Reformation especially had five theological truths that they emphasized, known as solas. Many of you, no doubt, have memorized these solas, or alones. Uh, the first and the most fundamental sola is sola scriptura, or that the scriptures alone are our source uh, of revelation concerning our doctrine and our life. Well, we've had numerous sermons through the Belgic Confession uh, on the Scriptures, and so I thought it wise to continue forward. The second, you might say, fundamental sola uh, is Christ alone. And so this morning, uh, I want to lead our attention uh, to that theme. And so we'll read from Acts 4, uh, verses 5 through 12. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thus far our reading from the Word of God this morning. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Reformation Day. I trust and I hope and I earnestly desire that for us Reformation simply be A time in which we look past for a moment with historical reflection. But rather that reformation might always be a living reality within the heart and the soul of this congregation. What do I mean by that? Uh, There are numerous historical landmarks, you might say, in the city of Pella. Perhaps most notable is the Skolty House as it stands there on the square, uh, reminding us of the history, you might say, uh, of this lovely town. Reminding us of the founding father of this town. And maybe you've had the opportunity to visit the Skolty House and to, to walk its halls and to look into its various rooms and see some of the furniture that is preserved there. But what is it really, other than a historical monument? Sure, we pass by it with perhaps curiosity, perhaps with some type of reflection. But does it really impact our daily lives? Do we really live any differently because the Skolty House stands there? And that's the danger, I believe, with Reformation Day. That we pass October 31 as we travel down the lane of human history and we say, oh yes, There is the Protestant Reformation. 
There stand the memories of a Luther and of a Calvin, of, of a Knox and of a Zwingli. Oh yes, there are the five solas. But then we just simply continue on with our life. Rather than being a mere historical marker, a mere monument to something that has taken place in the past, Reformation has to be something that grips us, that grips our very heart, that that grips our very soul, that grips our very person, so that you and I might truly be sons and daughters of the Protestant Reformation, living out the same conviction that the early Protestant Reformers lived, that we will be governed, that we will be led, that we will be guided by the Word of God alone. And as we are led and as we are guided by the Word of God alone, that Jesus Christ will always have the preeminence in our corporate congregational life, but also in our personal individual lives and in our domestic lives. That Jesus Christ might be first and foremost in our mind and in our will and in our affections and our hearts and our very lives. Indeed, this is the heartbeat of the Apostles. I've never made a formal study of apostolic preaching as it's recorded in the book of Acts, but in my reading of the sermons that the apostles preached, they always preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They went from town to town, from village to village, from synagogue to synagogue, from public meeting place to public meeting place, and they walked in amongst Jews, Gentiles, anyone who would grant them a hearing, and they had a basic and a simple message. They proclaimed who Jesus Christ was, and then they explained what Jesus Christ had done, and then they called the hearers to repentance and faith, promising that those who did repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ would certainly be saved, but also warning that those who rejected Jesus Christ in unbelief were under condemnation. And it's our purpose this morning not to do anything novel or new, not to do anything creative uh, or trendy, but rather to just simply continue that apostolic pattern by looking at solus Christus or Christ alone. As we make our way this morning through that theme, we first of all want to consider the denial of Christ alone, and then secondly, the basics of Christ alone, and then thirdly, the response to Christ alone. So using Acts 4, especially verse 12, as a template, so to speak, of the apostolic ministry, uh, we consider this morning the reformational fundamental truth of Christ alone. First of all, the denial. Secondly, the basics. And then thirdly, the response. The denial of Christ alone could be considered from a historical perspective, but then also from a personal perspective. Why did the reformers of the 16th and especially the 17th century, why did they have to re-emphasize in the work of Reformation? And Reformation means to reform something, implying that there had been a, a deforming. And so, boys and girls, maybe, and I don't know if this is still popular, but maybe you play with Plato. And you take that Plato and it's moldable. You can squish it around and you can make different things out of it. You can form it. And maybe you make something out of Plato, but then your younger brother or younger sister, or maybe your older brother and your older sister, they come by and they deform it. They, they, they take what you've made and they squish it into something else. 
Well, that had happened in relationship to the truths of the Bible all throughout the Middle Ages. The Roman Catholic Church had deformed these basic truths of Scripture. And so the Protestant reformers came and they reformed them. They reformed an understanding of Christ alone because it had been deformed. We see this already back in uh, the days of the New Testament with a group of persons known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were mostly of a Jewish ethnic origin, and they were steeped in the Old Testament ceremonies, in the Old Testament rituals, in the Old Testament practices of sacrifices, and especially uh, of the practice of circumcision. And what these Judaizers would do is they would follow the apostles and they would corrupt the apostles' teachings concerning the primacy of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles would come to a town or a village or a synagogue, and they would preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified alone. And then the Judaizers would come and say, yes, but you also need to do this or that if you want to be a member of the covenant community, if you want to be a member of the covenant people of God. I'll be referring to numerous scripture passages this morning, but if you want to turn to at least one, Galatians 5, 1 through 4, summarizes uh, the, the false teaching of the Judaizers, and so it shows us this basic historical denial of Christ alone. Paul writes to the Galatians, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, and just a note there, that's what the Judaizers were saying you had to do in order to be a member of the covenant community. You had to receive this visible sign of being a member of the covenant community. And Paul says, if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that, Christ will profit you nothing. Notice how stark of a contrast. If you try, Paul says, if you try to add anything to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ becomes nothing to you. Because if you try to add anything to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you thereby declare that Jesus Christ, at least in your estimation, is an incomplete Savior. And you diversify your faith. And the Apostle Paul would say, if you try to diversify your faith, then you do not have true saving faith. And so he continues, and he says in verse 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. And this basic teaching of the Judaizers was continued, as we said, all throughout the Middle Ages by the Roman Catholic Church as they said, okay, yes, Christ, we understand something of who He is, and we understand something of what He has done, but now, if you want to be saved, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to have the forgiveness of sins, you also need to do this and you need to do that. Uh, You need to have the Mass performed on your behalf. What the Roman Catholic Church did and does believe a re-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to have the forgiveness of sins, the Roman Catholic Church taught and teaches you must have the re-sacrifice continually of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in addition, uh, you must have confession. And you must have absolution. The priest must forgive you of your sins. Uh, And you can go a long ways in accomplishing that by the engaging in indulgences uh, and, and all sorts of human merits. And you see, that's what stirred the soul of a Reformers such as Martin Luther, he looked upon uh, the people in his community, the people of his parish, he looked upon these souls and he saw them languishing underneath this endless attempt to gain satisfaction with God by their own works. And so he nailed these 95 theses, these theological statements, not in some blatant act of defiance, but to have a theological discussion. Underneath the providence of God, they were taken down, translated, printed, mass-distributed, and the waves of the Reformation swept throughout Europe. But it all flowed out of a pastoral concern because of the denial of Christ alone. But we dare not think that this is something simply limited to the 16th or the 17th century. Also in our own time, in many instances, the sufficiency, the completeness of the work of Jesus Christ is denied. So it might be uh, in the era of the Federal Vision Movement, which basically is nothing other than the Judaizers brought up to the 21st century, which says, okay, yes, Christ has done half of your salvation, but now it's up to you to fulfill the requirements of the law in order to complete your salvation. Or it might be uh, in the emphasis uh, that we hear in some circles uh, of something that you can do. Uh, of your own self-esteem, of your own self-worth, of your own self-merit, whether it be the redemption of culture or or whether it be the the bringing about of equality within the social realm. And you see what is so sad and what is so devastating is when the church begins to shift its focus away from Christ and what Christ has done to human persons and to what human persons must do. This is why, although I often repeat it perhaps too much, There is a remarkable power in the statement of Martin Luther when he said, if you are looking for my righteousness, you must go to the right hand of the Father. Because my righteousness is seated there. And that brings us into the personal denial of Christ alone that can often creep up within our soul. Anytime we look to ourselves, whether that be our ethnic heritage, whether it be our spiritual pedigree, whether it be something that we have done, something we have accomplished, maybe even at times uh, we fall prey to the danger of boasting in our theological knowledge of who Christ is and of what he has done. And we somehow think that because I know so much about Christ and because I know so much about what he has done, that must be part of my righteousness. That must be part of why I'm accepted by God. You see how subtle and how dangerous this imbalance can creep into our belief. Well, we are the conservative ones. We are the ones who still celebrate the present Reformation. We are the ones who understand the solas of the Reformation. And if we find any comfort, if we find any confidence in that, that we are the conservative ones, that we are the ones who commemorate the Reformation, that we are the ones who know the five solas, then we need to ask ourselves, are we perhaps in some small way denying Christ alone? By saying Christ plus my expert knowledge of Christ. 
So this is not just merely a historical denial, but also a personal denial. And one of the most telling ways to find out if we are properly focused is to ask ourselves, is our Christian faith all about Jesus Christ? Is it all about Christ? I'll never forget, as long as I have my senses, a man from my former congregation, he's now passed on. Uh, and, and he was a man who would winter down in Florida uh, with a community of uh, other conservative Christians and from various denominations. And he would say, you know, at times they would get into theological discussions, debates, arguments, whatever it might be. And, and he then told me once, when, when they start having all of these theological arguments, I just look at them and I ask them, tell me what do you think about Christ? What do you think about Christ? He said, you know, half of them don't have anything to say. And the other half, it sets them straight. Not that theological discussion is bad in and of itself. But what do you think about Christ? Well, that leads into our second point, the basics of Christ alone. There's much that could be said uh, about Christ. This morning we want to simply say two things about Him. He is the only mediator and He is the perfect mediator. Now, of course, He is the eternal Son of God, fully God, also in the fullness of time, fully man, two natures, one person. Uh, And He is the one who has engaged in what we call the steps of humiliation and exaltation. Uh, But in all of that, He fulfills the work of being the only mediator. And we need to stress this idea of a mediator. A mediator is a person who is appointed to bring about reconciliation. To accomplish peace between estranged parties or parties who are at odds with one another. And congregation, I cannot emphasize it enough. Yes, there are implications from the Christian gospel for all aspects of our horizontal life. The relationships. Christianity properly understood will certainly impact uh, how we interact as husbands and wives and as parents and as children and, and as fellow believers. But first and foremost... Christianity is about the reconciliation of sinners with a holy God. And this was the question that Luther wrestled with. How can I, a sinner, be at peace with a God who is holy? And now in our day we find, of course, many de-emphasizing the reality of God's holiness, which then has the impact that you then begin to under. Estimate the reality of our sinfulness. God is infinitely holy and righteous and just. And we have sinned against Him and we are sinners. And so this is the question. How can I, a sinner, be reconciled with a holy God? And the answer is through a mediator. Through a person who has been assigned and appointed to bring about reconciliation. And the truth of Christ alone is that there is only one mediator between God and man. And that point is made very emphatically in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men. And then Paul doesn't leave us wondering. He identifies who that mediator is when he says, The man Christ Jesus. 
Now in this culture that we live in, in this world that we live in, and this is nothing really new, but rather it's a continuation of the age-old lie, our culture says there are numerous ways to find peace with the higher being whom some call God. And also the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, leading up to the Protestant Reformation, and still in their official teaching today, they say, okay, yes, Christ is a mediator, but also the Pope is a mediator, and the, the priest is a mediator. And as the priest performs the Mass, that is also mediatorial. That helps bring about peaceful reconciliation between sinful persons and a holy God. And what the Protestant Reformers were saying is based upon the authority of Scripture. What the priest is doing doesn't mean anything. And those relics that you have, those pieces from the cross that you apparently claim to have, enough pieces of the cross to stock multiple lumber yards, all of those mean nothing. And all of these candles and these prayers for the dead and this idea of meritorious works, it all means nothing. Because there is only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9, verse 15 says, And for this reason He is the mediator of the new covenant. And I hope we still learn in our education, whether it be in elementary school or secondary education, the difference between a definite article and an indefinite article. It does not say in Hebrews 9, verse 15, He is a mediator. He is the one and only mediator or person able to bring about peaceful reconciliation between sinful persons and a holy God. And so I proclaim to you this morning, there is one mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the only person who can reconcile you and I to God. But it's also my great privilege to proclaim to you this morning that He is a perfect mediator. Perfect in the sense that He fulfills absolutely everything that needs to be accomplished for there to be peace between ourselves and God. He does so by His sinless life, or what theologians call His act of obedience. By act of obedience, think of the fulfillment of every single commandment every single day of His life. Jesus Christ, during His earthly life, kept all of the commandments of God perfectly, never violating a single one of them, even in His thoughts or in the inclinations of His person. Now, He did that not to gain Himself acceptance with God. He is the eternally beloved Son. He's co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father. But Jesus Christ, as mediator, kept all of the requirements of the law perfectly for the sake of those who would trust in Him. For the sake of those who would believe upon Him. And sadly, oftentimes, this aspect of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is overlooked. And it, and it creates all types of pastoral concern within the hearts of persons. 
And so there's this wonderful phrase, and I know the forums have been updated, and I appreciate that, but uh, my memorization uh, it goes back to an earlier form. In relationship to the administration of the Lord's Supper, there is this phrase that God now looks upon me, or you, the believer, as if we had kept all of the commandments of God perfectly. So based upon what Jesus Christ has done, as I receive that work by faith, God in His righteous judgment looks upon me and upon you, dear believer, and He sees the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so He looks upon you as if you had kept every single one of the commandments perfectly. When somebody doesn't realize that, when a Christian has doubts and has fears, whether it be uh, on their deathbed or whether it be as the infirmities of the old age begin to come upon their mind and their soul, uh, and you visit with them and they say, well, I have fears, I have doubts. Oftentimes it can be traced back to a failure to understand what we call the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ. I understand having those fears, and I understand having those doubts, but I also understand that when I have had those fears and I've had those doubts, are times when my faith was not resting upon the act of obedience of Christ. But it began to kind of drift into my own act of obedience, which we know from the testimony of Scripture and from experience is always imperfect. And so the question, have you kept all the commandments of God? Is answered, no, but yes. No, not by my own actions, but yes, based upon my mediator, my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Who has not only kept all the commandments of God, but has also provided a substitutionary atonement. In my place he has stood condemned. And now it's sad to say, but so many in the church, broadly speaking, they laugh at this theology of blood, as they call it. And so many pulpits are embarrassed to proclaim the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. To talk about a bloody cross, that's not going to attract the masses. That's not going to speak to the contemporary wants and needs of our hearers. But there again, I take comfort, and you ought to also, in the apostolic preaching. Uh, what does Peter say uh, in his sermon, so to speak? There is salvation in no other. Acts 4, verse 12. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And also then there's this understanding that that includes the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we say that we believe in Christ alone, we believe that He is the only mediator able to accomplish peaceful reconciliation between ourselves and a holy God. He is the only one who is able to provide and has indeed provided for the forgiveness of our sins based upon what He did on a hill outside Jerusalem when He hung suspended between heaven and hell and when He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? 
The answer in part, and I understand we can never plumb the depths of his proclamation, but the answer in part, why have you forsaken me, is so that God might forgive his people of their sins. And not just some of them, but all of them. A full and a free forgiveness of sins that we might be justified by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what then ought to be our response to these wonderful and glorious truths? And our third point, and we'll be brief on this because we'll return to it in some measure again this evening as we consider another sola. There is the response of faith. Faith is, according to our Heidelberg Catechism, a certain knowledge, but also a trust or a confidence. So we know who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, but we also then trust or rely in him. And scripture points out that there must be an initial act of faith, a continual act of faith, and a final act of faith. An initial act of faith. As regeneration blossoms in the exercise of the soul, there is this initial act of faith, oftentimes imperceptible in its immaturity, but the initial act of faith is what is described, you might say, in John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And there again is the clear-cut contrast, if we may say it. The clear-cut contrast. Humanity can be divided in all sorts of demographic circles, but ultimately humanity is divided into two groups. Those who believe on the Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior, and who have eternal life. And if you believe, you have eternal life. And there is the group of humanity that do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have to solemnly warn any who hears these words, if you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life. But you are under condemnation. But today is still the day of grace. And so the command goes out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise follows quickly after the command. The command is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is, and you will be saved. Don't ever doubt that promise. Not only an initial act of faith, but there must be then a continual act of faith. Romans 1 verse 17 The just shall live by faith. This also, of course, was a very influential text in the theology of Martin Luther and of the Protestant Reformation. The just shall live actively, continually. Day in and day out, we live by faith. And that faith which we live by has to continually be focused upon Jesus Christ. But not only do we live by faith, but we must also Die in faith. We read in Hebrews 11, verse 3, these all, including Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, died in faith. A remarkable phrase. Died in faith. What does it mean to die in faith? It means that when this temporal earthly life comes to its end, that your heart, your soul, holds fast to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as you bid farewell to the temporal and as you cross that great divide into the eternal. Now we often don't like to talk about it and rarely do we like to think about it. 
But unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns first, each and every one of us will have a deathbed. It might be when we're very aged. It might be in the strength of our youth. It might come suddenly or it might come in a prolonged sort of an experience. The important thing is that we die in faith. Holding and embracing the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have faith and live in faith and die in faith, then there will be the response also of praise. Just let me simply conclude with this. Christ alone, what does this mean? Practically speaking, in the life of a congregation, uh, in the life of an assembly of believers, it will mean that our only boast will be in Jesus Christ. And this also is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. Do you boast? Boys and girls, do you know what boasting is? I, I'm the fastest. I'm the strongest. I'm the quickest. I'm the smartest. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not going to boast in anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. I firmly believe congregations boast. Now, they might not say it explicitly, but some congregations say, well, we are all about being relevant. We're all about being missional. We're all about being open to the, the seeker. We're all about doing this and we're all about doing that. So congregations do boast. And if you talk to persons, especially maybe perhaps persons in the community, you can kind of pick up on what a congregation boasts in. And they'll tell you, oh, that church, oh yeah, they're all about this, or they're all about that. Wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful if in this community, when we mention our congregation, people said, oh yes, they're all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we see it in their praise of God. And we see it in the commitment of their soul to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Yes, they're sinners. But they're sinners who find refuge in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And wouldn't that be the most wonderful testimony uh, when someone brought up your name and said, well, what do you know about him? Or what do you know about her? And they said, well, one thing I know about him or know about her. They are followers of Christ Jesus. Sure, they have many oddities, even in their personality. Sure, they've got some funny quirks about them. And I don't really understand this about them. But I cannot deny that they are followers of Christ who make their boast in Christ alone. That's what the Apostle Paul says also in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, and may it be true of us, both as individual persons and as a congregation, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we do thank You for the person of Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the redemptive saving work that He has accomplished once and for all. 
We humbly pray that You would now draw our hearts ever closer unto Him, that we might find our strength for today and also our bright hope for tomorrow, not in anything in and of ourselves, but only in His all-sufficiency. And may we as a congregation be a people who love the Lord Jesus Christ fervently and faithfully all the days of our life. And so doing, may we then also be a congregation that stands as a city upon a hill, a bright light in the midst of a dark and dying world, that your name might be honored and glorified. We ask all of this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.